0: Welcome, everybody, back to Overdue Rentals. I'm Matthew Shuckman. And I'm Cinema Lens Mike Reyes. And today, we are so pleased to be joined by Ryan Quanton, who is here to talk about his new film, Expired. Ryan, thank you for joining us.
1: Uh, thank you for having me, gentlemen. Absolute pleasure.
0: Well, you know, I think we should kick off, honestly, and I don't want to go too far into it, because I don't know how much you were aware of it until it happened, um, because there are some people who have seen this previously through festivals or, or other... Th- um means that know the film is loveland and yes. i'm wondering how long has it been since this change has been made and kind of what your feelings are on that
1: um honestly since the lionsgate acquisition and i think they thought it would just play better to a you know a, a us based audience under the film expired than loveland i think you know again when you're dealing with sort of cross genre pieces like this uh, um You know, I'm not a a salesman by any stretch. So, you know, you kind of leave it up to the powers that be to kind of do it. This is sort of a mix between that sci-fi thriller as well as, um, you know, a love story, a romance, so on in there. So, um, look, whatever helps is going to whatever helps sort of get gets butt on the seat and uh, and helps people kind of get moved
2: by this. I'm I'm all for. Well, listen, Ryan, babe, I am a salesman and I'm going to say that we tested so many titles with this movie that expired was the one that we landed on because I just happened to be looking at a carton of milk when I was watching this film and it moved me. <laughs> but in actuality, it, I can kind of see where they were going with that alternate title just because of, this movie has a very deep seated feeling of the fleetingness of life. And especially, we'll we won't go into any sort of spoilers, but your character is very much cognizant of this fact because of some things that we don't know at the beginning of the film
1: yeah that's a lovely way to put it i think it's i'm just going to shut this door guys because i've got the uh there's a, a lawnmower
2: i'll <laughs> we'll bring them in too we're friendly how dare they how dare they didn't they know who i was talking to <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah look i i honestly feel like it couldn't be more timely this this gorgeous filmmaker ivan sen is such a uh, a revelation when it comes to um stories that that have something to say about a a particular time and space and ivan has predominantly made a living through telling stories of the australian desert and the indigenous kind of uh ways that those stories are uh, affect people his characters but this one um i worked with him on mystery road which was close to 10 years ago and this one it was already permeating in his um world at that point and he pitched me the idea then and it was it was it was profound to me then how uh, relevant this movie was, but now it seems even, you know, it was pitched then as sci-fi. Now he's sort of pitching it more as like near-fi, like we're, we're, we're there. This world isn't so much of, uh, it, it feels more tangible than a lot of other sort of sci-fis that we see. It doesn't have the usual kind of um, the fake hologram screens. It doesn't have the high-tech gadgetry or the gimmetry that we're, we're We're sort of dealing with a how it is to be living at the bottom of that food chain. You know, uh, it's it's uh, it's a statement on investing more in the human condition as opposed to investing more in machines and uh, technology.
0: But it also, you know, compared to a lot of the peer sci-fi films that it could be compared to, as far as aesthetic goes, it does something in where it brings. A lot of those films do have a multi-culture to them, but this one deals with it in a much different way where it's just where people understand each other no matter what's going on and it's kind of a little more forward thinking compared to some of those other films where it's just like, oh, we mashed all these people together and who knows if they'll understand each other or not.
1: Yeah, thank you. I, I, I know that was a real concerted effort from Ivan because, again, this is sort of a I'd like to think it's almost like an indigenous viewpoint on where we're headed as a species, mm. you know, almost as a call to arms, like wake the fuck up guys. Cause there's some, uh, there's some fuckery afloat, you know, and we best start realizing the errors of our ways, both on a micro individual level and on a macro world-based level. Like there's, there's some stuff that uh, we're losing track of. And, you know, as much as technology has definitely kind of opened our worlds in some ways, In in other ways, you know, where we have devolved and, you know, I don't think there's been a time in our in our history where we where we haven't been as I don't think we've been more unhappy as a species. Yeah. Yeah, we have more information and more power at our fingertips. but we don't do anything with it.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's 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 really interesting because I find this is sort of a a spiritual cousin, obviously, Blade Runner just in the look, but also something that this movie does, and maybe I will say does a little bit better than Blade Runner. It's not very much throwing the apocalypse in your face. It's not throwing just this doom and gloom. Like it's not hammering it home too hard. You're allowed to explore the space of this world and just decide for yourself that, oh, wow, this is like Ten years down the future, and I'm not comfortable with this. And that's sort of the, the the sugar that helps the medicine go down, so to speak, versus just hitting a an audience member in the face and saying, "Look at this! Look at this! Damn it! And do something!"
1: Yeah, I, I think you do still want to instill an audience with a sense of hope. There just can't be a an overarching sense of foreboding or um or anything. You know, you you can still be affected by something, but we we still want to have hope in in. In our species, in ourselves, you still want to know that we can change and that there is still options out there. And look, it's our job as artists to kind of try and highlight that. You know, I think uh, Ivan's done an extraordinary job, and this hasn't been, you know, an easy movie to get off the ground. But um, now that it's out there, I I know that it has something very special to say.
0: It's also very smart. And I was telling this to Mike earlier uh, because, again so many films are just so easily just big balls of exposition dumps and just like telling the audience straight to their face what they need to know where this film is very very sly in the way it doesn't really until something happens you're just learning it naturally as if you're a new person in this world itself and you don't have to be told specifically but you can tell what's going on so it really kind of puts that together in a very smart way
1: oh i love the the layering that both of you guys have sort of found in it yeah there's there's the silences are actually louder than the words in in this and it's the breaths in between that really sing here Um, and that's where again working with someone like Ivan there is no hurry to get those words out the words come out when they're meant to come out so if that means you're waiting for 10 15 20 seconds to when it Truly feels like it has to come out, then that's that. Then that's what happens. He can sort out the rest later. Whatever, what whatever will be will be. But for for him, it was all about capturing that presence, and uh, he set that up pretty pretty early with us. Um, our first day of shooting in Mongkok, which is one of the more densely populated areas in the in the in the world in Hong Kong. Um, we're about to sort of small, tiny, gorilla, little uh, film unit. We're about to sort of charge out into the streets of Hong Kong. And he said, before we went out there, he said, the only way this is going to work, the only way is if we work within the chi of the city. Mm-hmm. We, And then that city will give back to us and we'll be absorbed into it. And that's ultimately what ended up happening. We have this wonderful interaction with the city. We didn't close down any streets. We just worked within the chi of the city and it literally uh you don't have people stopping to look in the camera it was just a straight uh they very much became or the city itself very much became a heartbeat for it
0: This also again for setting things up for people because this is a movie where you turn it on you first start watching it before anything is said before we hear your voice yeah you you are going to see the visuals and kind of start to think of other things but when your voice comes in when that when that when that overdone monologue comes in, you're just like, ooh, you've now brought me into a world. And I'm wondering how long it took you to kind of, if at all took that long at all, to kind of get that timber to where you know where, like, I'm gonna draw people in with this.
1: Thank you. Yeah, that was something Ivan and I definitely worked on was that uh, this is a guy that doesn't talk much, if at all, all, Mm. you know, and it's not until uh, he sort of follows April you know even then he's I don't think he's really intending to make any move but it's not until sort of he uh he runs into her at the nightclub where we sort of first hear him talk to someone and it's it's the it's a the kind of huskiness that comes from you know not using your voice it's almost like uh you know a, a three or four week bender where you, mm-hmm. you've, you've got so much collateral damage in your lungs and uh, sitting in your throat—that you—I'm uh, sorry—a bender is uh, Australian, Australian word. For, you know, you've you've been out on the on the tank for quite yeah. a while. We're we're um, familiar, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but this is a guy who's lived a life and then some. But he's he's done it more through action than through words. And mm-hmm. so um, when he's forced to kind of speak and articulate, it doesn't come easy. So that that was something that had to be sort of paramount in the voice as well. It's also very. I feel like it, there's there's a pain to it too, and it's oh, yeah. a very real pain as we discover as the course of the movie gets on. Like the one thing that makes him feel most alive is also the only
2: thing that can kill him.
0: Which I'll come back to after Mike uh, talks about what he was about to say.
2: You go with that because I want to hear what you got to say. Well, this is more of a statement you guys. This is me.
0: This is more of a statement than anything else. To be honest with you, I don't know how you react to this because I'm yeah. sitting there watching it. And again, we're trying not to specifically spoil anything, I guess. But uh, so plug your ears, I guess, for people who haven't seen the movie, movie yet, just in case. Because as we learn that, specifically what, what's happening to his body as a part, part of his you know, heart can feel something, we'll, we'll put it. All I can think of is I don't know how guys familiar both of you are with the song by Proko Haram called All This and More, because it's got a line in it that the actual line is um, For love is life not poison. But as a kid, I always misheard it. And I always misheard it as for love's life gone poison. Mm,
1: mm, mm. And
0: that just like it just the whole rest of the movie, that's all the flipped through my head the whole time. And that's just mm. it's not even a question. It's more of just a statement about how it made me feel.
1: Yeah, well, I think that it definitely brings up that as the bigger question too, as to would you want to live forever if it meant that you had to live without love? You know, I, I I think there's a deeper humanity and a deeper mortality here that 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 it puts it, it puts those bigger questions in your peripheral, you know, and it, it sort of makes you want to ask that of yourself. And it does that in a very unique way. It sort of sets you up where you think it's going to be a typical assassin meets girl type story. And it's not that at all. It yes. sort of changes its, you know, it goes into a different gear. It's almost like it it, it gets out of one car and jumps into another car. Um, sort of a third of the way through the movie. And that sort of really puts a, you know, I, I love the way that it, it's a love story that's told through both the female and the male standpoints. Um, a lot of sort of the, our classic, what we sort of think of the classic sci-fi is purely sort of the male-driven story.
2: Well, on top of that, there's just, there is an urgency to this film, but like you said, it's it's a very quiet sort of urgency where it's not just... Again, there's one shootout in this movie, and there's like maybe one hit, but other than that, the rest of this movie is very quiet and unfolding, and it's kind of poetic. Like just especially with the the monologues that are given through the the voiceover, it has a very sort of it's almost like someone's reading poetry and not just, you know, your hard boiled noir. I was there on the corner, and and she spot I spotted her there. It's like. It's very thoughtful in how it says things and what it's saying.
1: Thank you. Yeah. It's its own unique language. I remember getting the, uh, those voiceover pieces of poetry is what I called them too. you know, they really were. Um, and it, it had a, a real lyrical nature to it, which was a kind of a, a lovely juxtaposition to sort of some of the more barren, uh, stark images that you would see there. And, um, and even though there is tension, I don't feel like there's a sense of dread. Does that make sense? You still feel yeah. very lulled into this world. Um, every frame sort of encourages uh, life and emotion. However bleak it, it may look, it's still encouraging. And I think that's getting back to that sort of the the difference between it and a, and, a, and a Blade Runner for us was the life and the emotion that we tried to sort of put on top of the frame.
0: And it also it also very purposely, and I'm not going to this I definitely won't spoil or say anything, but it also definitely purposely tries to go against the grain in a lot of those things, especially with yes. your relationship between you and the Hugo Weaving character. Very specific, more than anything else, I would say, because you think you know what's supposed to be, but of course it's not.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I, I mean, I can't answer that yeah. question without sort of exactly. talking about how how well Hugo is just. You, you guys get the opportunity, as do I very luckily to meet icons you know heroes in the business and you know more often than not you're you're not exactly impressed let's say by sort of what you what yeah. you meet but hugo was one of those rarities that whatever put pedestal i had him on before he levitated above that he was such a uh, everything i could have wanted him to be and then some to give you a classic example he we There was one day where, he, uh, a couple of days where he wasn't working, but on one particular day, he, he decided we were getting a, um, a ferry across to Macau from Hong Kong. He turned up just as we we're sort of paying for the ferry to get across. He turned up in full costume and sort of said to Ivan, I'm ready to work. If you don't need me, I'll, I'll swing a boom. I'll do whatever has to be done. Mm. He, it was just that level of, of commitment, of curiosity that he brought to it. And you couldn't help but be inspired by it. And Ivan, of course, being a, a filmmaker and having someone of, of Hugo's talent in front of him, definitely used him in Macau. You know, there's a, it's that type of uh, inspiration that the, this film just had in spades.
2: No, it's absolutely. That's just sort of run and gun indie filmmaking yeah, man. that just you and, always have to admire that. It's like, okay, we got five days, uh, a package full of Kit Kats, and we're gonna make this movie.
1: Yeah. It's well, just- and the thing is, the prep work had been done. This is this is you know years in the making. So Ivan knew, and and he knew the vision, and we were all just um, following his vision, following you know the, the, his vision to whatever. And that was going to be, um, and it was such a, uh, you know, I've had the pleasure of working with him twice now. And uh, I-, I, would, I would go to war with that man in a heartbeat.
0: You said that, you know, he had bought this original idea up to you like a while, I like think almost what you'd say was 10 years ago. Yep. From what he told you then to what came out now, was it like almost the exact same thing or were there changes based on what you knew?
1: Yeah, see, there were changes the whole way along, even even in post, you know, there was uh, some of those, uh, the, um, the voiceovers, some of the lyrical nature of that sort of changed a bit too. Um, there were certain storylines that were amplified later, others that were sort of uh, dulled down a bit. Um, but he, he is a bit of a, it's always a little bit of a, as much as that, the themes are set and the bigger pitches are set. It still very much feels malleable. It still feels like there's play and uh, uh, a world that exists for the movie beyond just Ivan. He's more than happy for you to kind of um, come at him with ideas and sort of say, you know what, that's great. Let's, let's, let's see where that takes us. Hmm.
2: I I just, you know, as someone who's loved movies pretty much all of their life and I think Matthew can agree with me on this, when you learn the true collaborative nature of making films like that and you hear stories like that it just makes you appreciate the fact that they exist even more and that just goes for any sort of movie because anyone can point a camera and film something and say yeah that's my project but to have an intent and to have a statement takes so much more and so much more patience
1: yeah look there was a lot of civil unrest in Hong Kong at that particular time too and you know there's that overarching kind of political kind of statement that this film is making too so Ivan made it a point of getting um of, of getting his camera into some of those kind of the the uh the civil battles that were happening within Hong Kong so there was I remember he came to set after just being sort of pepper sprayed weeks before so he was he's not afraid to get to get dirty and you can't help but be to sort of want to give give back to someone that's willing to go to that kind of right. distance.
0: Well, now now you're making me think because I remember the their footage of unrest that's shown. Yeah. And now I'm trying to think, oh wait, did he shoot that himself?
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Hmm.
0: That's pretty, that's pretty insane. Cause watching it, you think to yourself, it's probably just archival news footage and you don't even think about it. And now that no, you're telling means- me that it's like a whole other world has opened up into my mind.
1: Yeah, the, you know, him it's no good just being at the gates you want to get into the belly of the beast you know and that's that's where the the real change happens um yeah
2: mm. wow i'm sorry i'm just still soaking that in yeah <laughs> the belly of the beast yeah yeah that well just there's, <laughs> there's clearly your love for this project is through the roof and I, that's just the sort of thing that nourishes conversations like this on Overdue Rentals because we can, like even making a movie, we could very easily talk about a movie and say, oh yeah, you know, expired, it's it's coming out. Oh, it's really deep to the human condition. But like, this is all, this is just all pure unvarnished here. And it's not, That that's part of why I like doing the show. It's It's not just five minutes. Okay, we don't really have time for nuance we get to dig into this and you're giving us these wonderful stories and just that belly of the beast line, just, Oh, it makes me want to make a movie with you guys. Yeah. Look, there's a, uh,
1: that heart on your sleeve type of artistic way of, of doing things is unfortunately it's sort of, it felt, it feels like we were sort of doing it how they used to do it in the seventies. You know, Mm -hmm. the, there wasn't a, a a studio exec. There wasn't uh, anyone else telling us how to do it or which way the coke can should be facing. This was just pure, unadulterated um, presence of mind. You know, knowing what had to be done and and getting it done. I, I yeah. There's um, this film in, in, indelibly changed me too. Made me. Um, I would like to think a better human. Yeah, you know, uh, but I had to go through some shit to get there. And uh, but you know, the, the best kind of experiences or journeys in life you you want to go through. You know, you gotta go go through hell to get to heaven, I guess.
0: Well, what's also great, I think, is we've come to a point for again, as much as we talked about, you know, how much information's out in the world and we don't use it to help ourselves and, and kind of be more downer version of 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 what could be. In, yeah. Just in the film world itself, though, we have, I think, finally, finally reached a point, maybe it's because of streaming for services, maybe it's just that because people have ed- easier access to things, while, yeah, I mean, we're not, you know, Exile, unfortunately, is not going to beat up the Batman, but more people are going to see it, more people are going to be affected by it. We've come to a point where these smaller films are not, they're not even considered indie anymore in some ways, even though that may be the the financing side of it. They're hmm. becoming much more well known to the general public.
1: And look, I honestly believe that it's conversations like this, too. Post post making the film, that these days, because of beautiful outlets like yours, we can the word like a film, the word on a film like this can get out there. In it, whereas before, it, it you know it was a lot harder. There's so much noise these days that yeah. you know you guys have obviously found the power of. of you know, doing these types of podcasts, they they can really um, the 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 type of fans that you have are the type of people that want to listen to not just a a two minute kind of soundbite or the 10-second soundbite. They want to they want to sink sink their teeth in deep.
0: And please forgive me, I just realized I may have said exile instead of expired. I don't know if yeah, I did. if I right did. Mate. Okay, yeah. good. That's, All right.
1: that's, one. that's the next you'll, one. You'll be in exile if you don't see. <laughs>
0: No, it's, it's it's funny because the, for some reason, every time I would think about getting ready to put the movie on, I like would start typing things and I mistyped it. And I write, why
2: am I writing Exile? What's wrong with me? <laughs> okay, so the most confusing experience I had with this is I get, a, I get the email and it's like, your link it your link for expired. And then I click, it's like, wait, no, I'm supposed no, to be- just- oh, <laughs> that's the title of the movie. No, okay, expired. No, it's the link is still good. It's just it, it's for the movie expired. Gotcha. okay. Not, <laughs> not reading it closely enough is just that sort of triggers in your head. It's like what? No, I just got this. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> but that's something only we will have to deal with. Everybody else, don't worry about it. You won't have to deal
1: with that kind of thing.
2: No, no, it's it's pretty readily available, and you will see expired right there. You even see it in the trailer. This movie will self destruct. <laughs> I
0: saw I saw the stupidest thing the other the, this afternoon actually because they're. So many more sites now that are just trying to be the onion um because they have click hole and they have the hard times. And I think it was somebody has jumped off on the hard times and they picked up on um the hard si- I can't remember what it's called, but it's about video games instead. And it's like all mm-hmm. unused Wii's by 2023 will self-destruct. And everybody of course thought it was serious. Yeah, it just, it just reminded me of that. I'm sorry, it has nothing
1: to do
2: with anything. It just it just no, no, no,
1: worries. <laughs> hey Jim, what if I ask you guys what was what was the inspiration
2: behind this podcast? Mike, would you prefer? I'll start. You can pick up what I, what I leave out. Um, I basically, Matt and I have known each other for a couple of years on the, the film journalism circuit. And at one point, I think it was during the pandemic. Well, it was before the pandemic. He, he planted the seed. And then during the pandemic, we really got into it. He's like, look, we should do a podcast together. And then we're like, OK, what do we, what do, we do a show about? Like, what is there that isn't you know, too overtapped, but something we're qualified for? And then all of a sudden, it came the idea of you know what? There's these movies that people don't really talk about as much that we think at the very least they should give them a watch. But nine times out of ten, it's something that we're really enthusiastic about and just want people to sort of get the word out on.
0: Well, no, because you know the way I always used to tell, and the way I originally brought up to Mike too, was is that I remember being a kid, and you know every Saturday night a new movie was gonna come on HBO. But in the same breath, if I'm sitting at home sick from from school or whatever it is. The Last Dragon's always gonna come on TV. And, you know, The Last Dragon was a classic, but it's not a really a good movie, but it was like on everybody's lips. We'd all talk about it. Everybody at school would talk about it forever. They'd, they'd parody these things on whatever sketch show was on at the time. And now all of a sudden, nobody knows what it is.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: they could have been something like, cause a good example that I think is LA Confidential, which was an Academy Award nominee, should have won over Titanic in my mind. Um, and yeah, people talk about it, people know it, but nobody talks about it like it was this revolutionary piece of art anymore, which it
1: was. It's a great reference. It's a great reference. Yeah. Um, so how do you keep up with it? How do you keep up? How do you, how have you got your sources in everywhere or you got you know, you us living and breathing it?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, at first it was, I mean, we have a, we have a list of like 400 some odd films we want to talk about.
1: Oh. Now <laughs> room for more. So, how does it keep up with you?
0: Yeah, yeah, we 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 reached out to people, we started reaching out to people, but then it's like it made more sense like hey, we're going to be doing junkets anyway, let's let's combine the two because it also brings attention to something like expired that just like we were talking about. People are going to know about it, but there are going to be people in certain niches because all they know is what's on the radio or what's on the TV, what's in the newspaper being advertised that we have to reach out to as well. So it does it does both at once.
1: Yeah, yeah. Lovely.
0: But with that then, because we do have a film that we want to talk to you about that we think is a little overdue, but we're wondering, is there anything on the top of your mind that you think is an overdue rental type of film?
1: Yes, there's a, an Aussie movie that's hard to find, but okay. it's out there, but it's out there called Van Diemen's Land. All right. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to give it away, but it is, it's a brutal movie but well worth the, the watch um, still sort of hasn't received any kind of recognition. There was a lot of kind of uh, movies that came out at the time The closest kind of example I would give that it would be like is ravenous. Okay. I don't know if you ever saw that.
0: No, ravenous. absolutely.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. So that would be its closest kind of cousin, I guess. Well, cause
0: I, I mean, that's interesting that you say that not because I thought that's cause this is definitely a film that I personally haven't heard of, but you hear so many people, because there are certain films that, you know, find their way into the subculture. So for horror, if we're talking about it, people will probably bring up Wolf Creek. Right. And who knows if, oh, Ryan was just about to say Wolf Creek. I'm like, oh yeah, of course. But no, you, you definitely put one on that has to go on my list, which so it is obviously up for two.
1: Well, that's what I figured. You know, I, I, you guys, are you know, your wealth of movies, it's pretty hard to sort of stump you. So like, um, again, I, I'm a big fan of getting, movies that no one's sort of heard of you know uh uh, out there and getting seen you know movies that have sort of uh something to say or it's you know affecting the human condition in some way shape or form
2: yeah i mean that's that's what we love to celebrate here it's just having a good time and we have (laughs) sort of a the the our our sort of premise within the premises we're like running a video store where it's like basically we're the guys recommending these are the movies you need to go watch and cross off your list
1: oh i love
2: because, because there, there was something to that. Yes, I miss those
1: days. I would spend two and a half hours, three hours in the video store, just annoying the hell out of whoever was working. You know, what about this? Or just getting lost reading the back, seeing all the, you know, I, you, you kind of miss that. It's, it was almost romantic, wasn't it? Well,
0: there's a feel. there's also a feeling that I don't think you can get now, because I, I, I don't know if I've told this story before, Mike, but I have a very vivid memory of being just a little kid going to our local video store before there was a Blockbuster. And I'd always see up on the very top, this box, and it was the Evil Dead 2 box. And so it was a skull <laughs> looking at you. And I'm like, as a kid, I'm like, oh, what? And then years later, my father's like, you have to see this movie. This is like, now I'm like 10 or 11 years old, or something like that. And of course I see it and I'm, I'm absolutely in love with it. But I'm like, now I realize that was the thing that freaked me out every time I went to the video store
1: mm-hmm.
0: that is now here. And people, yeah, people could see things in the ether, see things passing by them on the internet, but it's not the same anymore.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it, what what a what a movie for your dad to introduce you to like that's uh, a-
0: yeah we've we've had this. My father let me watch a lot of stuff when I was young that I probably shouldn't have been watching at my age, but he knew I was mature. I showed interest in filmmaking at the time. He knew I could take it. So like, I, there's a lot of stuff I was watching at a very young
2: age. You watched The yeah. Silent Partner as a kid. I watched Clockwork Orange when I was like ten. Wow!
1: Wow!
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was, I was a little later, little later to the party, I think.
0: <laughs> no, I remember. I remember. I went to a video store with my friends, and I was 11 years old, or 11 or 12, I guess. And they all want I can. Now I'm having a bad time remembering like what else was out at the time. What they wanted to try and rent, but obviously it was something like Ace Ventura or mm. something along those lines. And they all go outside, and I go to the video clerk. I'm like, Do you? Ha- I. This is 100% a true story. I said, Do you have any copies of Naked Lunch to rent? Yeah, nice. And they looked at me, they're like very confused. Like, would your parents let you watch? I'm like, yes, they would. And I guess they figured because I asked for it that I'm not an idiot. And they were going to if they had it, but they didn't have any copies for me to rent at 11 years old.
2: It's very strange. <laughs> every 11 year old wanted that weekend. Are you kidding? Cronenberg mania, man. It was contagious.
1: You have that. You have this signed approval from your parents.
2: No,
0: not absolutely not. But I'm. They would have come with me and later on and go like, yeah, he can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: Okay, Matthew, I don't know if I've told you this story. I know I haven't told Ryan the story because we never talked before, but I haven't, don't know if I've told you this story, Matthew.
0: Okay.
2: I got to talk to uh, Edgar Wright when they did the Simon Pegg, uh, not Simon Pegg, the uh, Scott Huzzle. Pilgrim 10th anniversary. And I randomly was just, I was really hot on talking to people about movie novelizations at that point. And he goes and tells me the story about how he and his brother were too young to see gremlins. Mm. But they bluffed their way in because he's like, look, we have, we read the novelization. We know what's happening in this movie. Nothing is going to surprise us. And the guy's like, okay, fine. Get in there. <laughs> get in there quick. It's just I'm amazing. close my eyes could... for
1: three seconds and just go. I didn't see you. Yeah.
2: yeah, exactly. It's just that, you know, people were a little, a little freer with what they let kids watch. Yeah. And also to everyone's point, this was just the golden age of box art, especially when it came to horror movies.
1: Like yeah, the no, horror
2: it's... movies had some of the most memorable, the best images that it just burns itself in your mind, and you want to rent that. I remember the Evil Dead Two art because I showed up to like a local supermarket as a kid, and they had the poster up for it. It's like, ah, oh, I
1: don't want to yeah. watch that. Hellraiser, uh, uh, Children of the Corn, like although there's so many great kind of. Uh, video covers at that time that you'd walk by in the same way that you did with Evil Dead 2, that there were so many video covers that would haunt you, that would yeah. stay with you. So many of the, the what is it? The, the one pick that they
2: have that that would just
1: sum up the movie in, in, a, in, in one look.
2: They were kind of unfairly advantageous in that sense because it's like horror is one of the easiest genres to get away with a very striking image, vague concept. It may not exactly be what's going on in this movie. No, but it's more like it's here. Oh, and yeah. to that effect, I'll be right back. I need to grab something.
0: Okay. Well, while Mike's away, uh... oh, it. <laughs> it's not Don't a lawnmower. On my spotlight. Yeah. yeah, he's he's right outside. Is there? Right.
2: Yeah. That image. <laughs> I remember seeing that and just oh f- yes. Uh, uh, and to that point if you are if you are if you want to discuss Dead silence with us because I know it's been a couple years I want to say uh, I think it was 2007. Yeah,
1: at least for release, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: Yeah, we shot it to the beginning end of 2005 beginning of 2006. So yeah, that's many moons ago. Um I'll see what my memory can, can, can hold up for you guys. I, I'll tell you the first thing I do remember is actually Donnie. Um, yes! Donnie being petrified to the point where I think it was, he had a condition of, of puppets and anything to do with it, whether it was puppeteering or just puppets in general, the, the dude had a, a genuine kind of fear complex over puppets and it was kind of a uh, you know, hilarious to work with him because it was, you know, you, you always—he is a very put together man, you know. And then that—that that was like the one sort of chink in his armor. I thought, good on you for even sort of taking this movie on, knowing that that was your Achilles' heel of sorts.
2: Oh yeah, because I think this was this was early in his relationship with uh, sort of the the creative wheelhouse of like Lee Unnel, James Bond, Uh, I'm trying to think of the like the producers of Saw, basically, because he was yeah. brought in for the sequel so i'm sure he kind of wound up in here sort of like a sweetheart deal it's like do you want to come make this movie with us and it's like oh yeah yeah sure what's it doing well there's dolls i gotta think i actually
1: don't think i don't think he realized until he got on set i actually feel like it was sort of something that was sort of he'd long forgotten about that's Hmm. what it felt like So, so there was like a real kind of sense of uh of tension to him whenever whenever there was that kind of interplay particularly towards the final act of the movie um you know oh. he's not i don't feel like he's doing a lot of acting <laughs> it's it he's he's into it um what else do i remember um you know judith anna roberts like one of the the best kind of uh uh villains you could hope for she mm-hmm. just uh she just portrayed Mary Shaw with such a um like a, a gloriousness she really relished it, you know, and um when she was in character, there was definitely um a method that she had committed to um yeah, um that I remember seeing it and being impressed by Charlie Clous's work too um oh, yeah. You know, I was, I'm a huge Nine Inch Nails fan. So um, to know that he was sort of on board for, for that as well was, was pretty incredible. Um, I remember shooting in Vancouver for the first time. That was pretty, pretty, uh, Toronto for the first time. That was pretty, pretty amazing. I remember being, it was my first lead, I guess, of a studio movie. Um, that was also pretty um, spectacular in terms of a, a time in my life. Yeah.
0: What, what I think is interesting about the movie, this is not even recalling it or or, or specifically talking about you know, making it itself, is, is that because when James Wan became this household name for people when the Conjuring kind of series started and everything like that, now everybody is going crazy over how your quote unquote bat shit malignant is. If you go back and look at Dead Silence, it was like, it was almost a precursor to let you know. it's was like, no, right, you know, this is the kind of stuff that, this guy is gonna want to do, even though you know Lee was technically listed as the only screenwriter on this one, and he didn't have, to have anything to do with *Malignant*. But showing, you know, it's kind of like this, this almost like fortune telling for what people thought they weren't ready to expect, but they should have.
1: Yeah, those guys just have an incredible grasp of of the roots of what scares us. I think you know, and I I, I think that that's sort of palpable in their work. It, it's a reason that they can continue to do um you know multiple franchises now like there's not so many filmmakers this day and age that can do that and do it successfully like they have it's they're really a a force to be reckoned with think james was sort of you know much in the same way that ivan is a visionary director james is too you know there's really he's got some very um structured plans as to how he thinks the the shots will go, but then on the day is so more than happy to be inspired by uh, the way a location looks, the way a light might be coming in through a window that he didn't expect, that he's more than happy to kind of change up that shot list to sort of rework something and then just be surprised by the result of that. Oh, maybe that should lead to here instead of there. You know, that type of filmmaking is... love you're shooting by the seat of your pants it's fantastic
2: that kind of reminds me uh colin farrell did an interview on hot ones recently and he basically described terrence malick in that same sort of way like he would Mm. he would be filming a scene a dialogue and then terrence malick would just cut to like a bird or lightning or something and it was just that sort of random this works trust me on this yeah yeah, yeah explanation i love that yeah
1: um look, you got to capture it when it's there. Cause you know, lightning doesn't strike twice. So you got to kind of get it while, while it's there. I, I really, I'm a firm believer in that. And you know, the, the, the longer I go in this career, you know, I've made a, a living now out of playing pretty dark characters for the last 15 years, you know, yeah. since, since kind of true blood, I've made a distinct choice in my career to just go uh, dark mm. and, uh, you know, explore that side of life. And I, what I've loved about it the, the most is as well as just finding light in the darkest places is bringing out, uh, humanity to sometimes even the most sort of, uh, inhumane people.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, not to, not to go back a little bit to what Mike was, uh, what you and Mike were both talking about again, about this, the idea of like, Fly, fly by the seat of your pants filmmaking, but I think it's so interesting because there must be, I mean, again, it depends on who's had the experiences, but there's gotta be, there's so much love for both kind of versions of what you can do, because yes, it's great when you can go guerrilla style and just catch what you can, you know, you gotta change it. But then you look at people like, like the Goan brothers of the world, the Diego writes the world where it's like, people think it's all improv. No, that stuff is like to the T, that's how they planned it and that's how it's gonna go. And so this like balance of like there you can't tell which one's better because as long as you get something good out of it, that's all that matters.
1: yeah, I had the pleasure of watching Raising Arizona again recently, and that film still holds up, oh yeah, you know, I think you know you release that these days, and I think that's still you know, kills it's such a great movie um yeah they're 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 a great reference point for that it does it feels very even Fargo it feels very like William H. Macy is just uh. He is that guy. He 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 <laughs> has that kind of, um, you know that 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 car salesman type of uh, mystique that you just can't help but be kind of drawn into. Like, geez, you, you know, he, he makes you think what a poor soul he is. At the same time, he's trying to kill his wife. You know? Yeah, or have and his that- wife. Kill her.
0: I don't want to get too far into a rabbit hole now of talking about raising Arizona as well. But since you recently rewatched it, I have a question. Because mm-hmm. This is always my, this has always been my thing when after no country for all men came out, because I understand no country for all men was a book. Cormac McCarthy necessarily, I don't think had any inspiration from anything the Coen brothers did previously when he wrote the book, but in so many ways, I feel that they're spiritual like sisters because yeah. they're, they're both movies about somebody realizing that they're kind of, not ready for what the world has for them, and I just find it a very strange comparison that they're they're kind of like they're they're bonded.
1: Well, I love that. Not ready for what the world has for them. I never would have seen seen that. So uh, thank you. But yeah, that makes it makes it makes sense. I never would have seen that um, sort of reference point. Uh,
0: well, it's also I mean, it also goes back to again, like with No Country for Old Men. I know it's Cormac's words, and they're very true to them in the movie but you're looking at three characters who are the idea that they're the same person just on different parts of the evolutionary expansion of what they could be. And then you have, you have um, high and, you know, the bounty hunter who are, you know, they both have the tattoo and they both have criminal pasts and it's like one went down one road went one went down another. And I'm like, these are the same movie almost.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think they like to deal with that kind of a, uh bringing two juxtaposed worlds together you know and and just mashing that and that's the that's a genre that's the Coen brothers alone yeah. you know they really there's you know instantly what the uh, filmmakers are behind it you know when you when you see a Coen brothers movie it's it's instantaneous um both in the visual and in the in the writing
2: it's amazing that they they just capture both the banality and the absurdity of the universe where it's like this is an uncaring universe and all of this stuff almost happens as if something actually cares but then there's always that little peek behind the curtains like no this is just us we're yeah, doing this.
1: just us sorry about that yep <laughs> it was now. a great uh, I listened to a great it was a BAFTA um interview of Charlie Kaufman I also love uh, love him and he talks about Um, movies or writing movies in general to be it's an opportunity to recognize our common humanity and vulnerability and uh you you see that in however quirky his works get you still see that common thread of humanity through it and it's a lovely thing no matter how uh out there these characters and the plot seems that you're still following because of that sense of well, they're about to fuck up now, or you know, the, I, I, I've I, I've felt this myself. I may not have been in that situation, but I've felt that feeling of urgency, whatever it may be.
0: Yeah, I always, I mean, <laughs> not to go to probably his most popular, well-known film with the general public, but you always go back to that scene in Eternal Sunshine when when Jim Carrey's just like, "I don't, I don't know, I don't <laughs> know," and that's that's that feeling of just like, yeah, it may be a different situation, but I know exactly what he's feeling
1: yeah 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 <laughs> i think i have that daily
0: <laughs> <laughs> me too
2: well, that just goes to show the power of a really good signature and you know while while it's we're obviously not going to dive too deep into dead silence it is very much a james wan movie and i uh, matthew mm. i am glad you mentioned malignant because this is the first movie i thought of when those initial reactions to Malignant were coming out. yeah, Because everybody thinks of James Wan one way, like they either think of that first Saw movie or probably now Aquaman. And it's like, yeah, these are part of his signature, but if you've been paying attention the whole time, you knew that this was gonna be this type of movie, like it should be no surprise. And also just this hitting in like, I think it was in like my early twenties at this point, this hit at the right time where I was a kid that was growing up on Are You Afraid of the Dark from Nickelodeon. Mm. And this felt like a great stepping stone from that, where it was like, uh, Ryan, I don't know if you're familiar with that series. Uh, I know,
1: I haven't seen it, but I know what you're talking about, yes.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was just basically like Twilight Zone, Tales from the Dark Side for kids, where it was all also akin to Goosebumps, where it was very, it pushed the envelope of scaring kids, but it didn't go anywhere too horrible. Mm, mm ventriloquist dummies and toys were always something that was used in those sorts of things uh hell you even go back to uh, twilight zone and you have talking tina like yeah, that
1: yeah, classic yeah, yeah. Episode. well they stand the test of time right they continue to scare there's something sort of uh okay, creepy for lack of a better word of something sort of talking without you know something inanimate talking you know there's uh and as a kid you how is that how is that happening and then you know as an adult how do you And that's the genius of of the two guys too you know of james and lee is how do you bring a story like that that is predominantly sort of one that would really be told as a children's story how do you make it accessible to an adult audience it was interesting because i I think I, i think we got you know, it, it wasn't a huge push from the studio. So the the movie, I think from a, a box office standpoint, kind of really dismally failed. But it's interesting in the, the last couple of years, guys, like the amount of people that have come up to me sort of saying that um, that they not only saw it, but really sort of enjoyed it, were affected by it, Was it's kind of oddly either stood the test of time or people are just sort of, discovering it now. I don't know what it is, but you know, I'm, I'm more than happy that they are. It's great.
2: I wish I could have found the whole thing because Lee L used to run, I don't know if he still runs it anymore. He ran a blog and mm. he wrote an entire story about what went on with this movie. And I've <laughs> only been able to find snippets and Ryan hit the nail on the head by mentioning there was not a big push for this film from Universal. And on top of that, I think I read that the the idea was suggested to him by his agent. Like, uh, yeah, one, it's according to the Wikipedia, talking about that post. Uh, when I'll explained that the film was conceived by following the advice of his agent at the time, and they had a script doctor. So I'm assuming this didn't this changed so much by time it got to the end game that he was just like, uh, I'm I'm done with this. And then just the studio not selling it was another point that he's just like, look you argued with me on this script. I made this script and now you're just going to do nothing with it.
1: <laughs> right. Uh, you look, uh, you know, I felt the same way as, uh, you know, as an actor, it's, you know, and, and for everyone that put in their, their hard time on this, you know, there was uh, a certain obligation that we went through to kind of do the best that we could. And you kind of hope that a studio could, the least they could do is sort of give us a fair run, um, from a theatrical standpoint but. um, you know, who knows what was happening over there at the time. But uh, look, I'm just glad that it's sort of, it's it's found another life or it continues to stay alive, I should say.
2: Yeah. Kind of uh, hard to kill something like this.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Mary Shaw will never die, right? No, no. Now, this I, was
2: right before, sorry, Matthew.
1: No, no, go go ahead, go ahead.
2: Right before, or it looked like by the time your, your filmography, this was right before you started the gig on True Blood. Did this help influence them to cast you in any way? Like, did they, was this one of the things that they sort of saw and was like, we need that, we need that dead silence guy.
1: No, believe it or not, it was a movie that I did, a very family-friendly movie, um, one of the very few that I've ever done, um, <laughs> called Flickr, uh, oh. which was also, which was also a studio movie, but that was starring uh, Alison Lohman and uh, Tim McGraw, Maria Bello. Yeah. And, um it was Alan Ball that had seen that and thought that my character in that was like a, a G-rated version of what he thought Jason Stackhouse could be. So they had me sort of come in on and audition and I was sort of fortunate enough to be sort of first cast in that, in that series. So it was a, yeah, a, a match made in heaven, I guess.
0: Well, I mean, I wish we could stay and talk longer about everything. I know we got to let you go. So thank you for joining us. And uh anytime you want to come yeah, back, happy. if you have another film you wanna you want to talk about and have other people learn, just let us know. We'll be here.
1: Yeah, this has been exceptional, guys. Thank you, Matthew, thank you, Mike. Really um, thank you for the insightful interview and yeah, yeah, and thank you for watching the movie. Continue to do it.
2: Well, thank you for having us. Stay safe. All right, gentlemen. Have a good thanks one so much. Thank you. Ryan Quanton, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. Just yes. Uh, man, you know, I it's funny because I almost forgot he was in Dead Silence because of True Blood, because of just seeing him in that series and remembering him mostly from that. But then when you mentioned it, it's like, oh yeah, Ryan Ryan picked Dead Silence. It's like, oh wait, he was in that.
0: Well, you know, it's funny because there are other things that we could have maybe spoken to him about. Um, But just because, again, like we were talking about that idea that, you know, yes, I understand that maybe certain people weren't ready for what Malignant gave to them. But it really was, is like, you shouldn't have been that surprised. And that's why I think more so than anything, beyond maybe not enough people still knowing about Dead Silence maybe, is, is why it's an important thing to kind of talk about now.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's just those movies where some people think that it's just such a radical departure for a director, but then you look at their, if you were looking closely enough, you'd realize, no, it, it may seem like an aberration compared to their more mainstream stuff, but this is something that's totally in their wheelhouse. Uh, this and in fact this and malignant would make a fantastic double feature of of unfairly maligned films
0: yeah and you know i think again also though going back to dead silence without ruining i guess the twist for people who haven't seen it yet you know go you know, go see it but um, oh yeah you know it's when you get that final reveal like even though it's not as long and drawn out as something in malignant it is something that that's where you notice it's like all right, if they're going to do this, then who knows what they're going to do in the future. So by again, by the time Belinda comes out, it's like, don't be that surprised.
2: No, no. And again, just Mark Wahlberg in this movie is- terrific. Donnie, Donnie Wahlberg. Donnie, Donnie. Oh, Mark would have been fun too. Get them both. That's the sequel. You just bring in Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, my, my brother died in this town. I heard there were puppets. They're going to be on the floor after I'm done with them. I don't want to be there. I this. hate puppets. I hate puppets, man. But yeah, Donnie Wahlberg just I love that one part where it's in the third act. They're going down a hallway. Uh Ryan Quantin thinks he hears a noise. And then he's like Donnie's like no you don't and then it's like yes I'm here. And he's like you say I told you so. I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> and it's like it's just James Wan having such a good sense of humor and realizing that horror needs that humor but at the right time.
0: Yeah, it's it's cuz that's I mean really Donnie is the big comic relief in the film because really if you didn't have him even though it's supposed to be a horror film and you don't need a lot of it it's it's like a very different feeling um and i don't mean to change the subject a little bit but i do want to bring up that we didn't get to talk about uh very quickly is because for you it was are you afraid of the dark and then knowing again the twilight zone episode which did have the the actual Venture Look was dummy episode as well but you know, growing up, my father was also a very big proponent of Dead of Night, which is a 1945 anthology horror film. And it was probably for him, what he would consider the first time he saw like that ventriloquist was dummy uh, alive character and it freaked the crap out of him. And I also always equate things to, which I believe I have on our list. uh, And I can't remember the exact year, but it was the eighties with Anthony Hopkins magic, which there's a scene in magic which still, no matter what, when I try to describe the people, I will get the
2: biggest chills in the world. That is like me with the thing, with the, the scene with the dogs. Okay. Always,
0: always. Well, I will say, I will say because there's, for people who have never seen Magic, Magic is a, a story about a ventriloquist who, you know, has some mental issues and he thinks his dummy's alive. And it's kind of ambiguous, even though it's not ambiguous, because it's, it's, it's more, much more so that the dummy's not alive kind of thing, but they play with it during the movie. And so there's, he, you know, he talks to the dummy, you know, and it's in his mind. So the dummy's mouth doesn't move a lot of times. And there's a scene because Burgess Meredith plays his manager and Burgess, he comes to visit him because he realizes something's wrong. And he's, he's out at like a lake with, with a woman and some other people. And he tries to talk to him he's, and he's got the dummy in his lap and he can't stop the dummy from talking. He's like, just try try and sit for, for, for a minute without having the dummy talk. And then he just like bursts out and that's free, frightening enough. But then Burgess Meredith leaves and Anthony Hopkins is talking to the dummy. And I'm sorry if nobody's seen this, Mike, if you haven't seen it, I don't know. I can't help but not talk about it.
2: I haven't seen it, but it's compelling hearing him. I know of it, but I well, just haven't seen it. So as Burgess Meredith leaves, he's in like a rowboat to
0: go back to the shore from where this lake house is in.
2: Dummies in rowboats, man.
0: And he's talking to the, and Anthony Hopkins is talking to the dummy again. Just kind of like, he's talking out loud, the dummy's just talking without, his mouth moving and he's like, we got it. The dummy's like, we got to stop him. We got, we got, we got to get rid of him. He's like, but how, but how? And then each time it says, it it does one of these things where it moves on the dummy. He's like, use me, me, me as like, use the dummy as the weapon to kill him. And I was like, oh my God. But as, as he screamed me, me, it's like, it just, it shivers down my spine. It's, I'm not making any sense. Cause I'm passionate about it. I'm trying to get it out where it makes sense to people who haven't seen it. I can't help no, it. No,
2: you're so making sense. It's just uh, making me want
0: to see it even more. Oh, it's so good. So good. Anyway, cross off, expire from your overdue rentals list as it's coming out March 18th. Make sure you go see it. And then if you haven't seen Dead Silence, go and cross that off your overdue rentals list.
2: Mike, where can people find us? Ah, oh, I was afraid you wouldn't ask. Well, if you want to- find- I
0: almost wasn't. I was going to like, just like, oh, I'm say it.
2: I'm going to let him hang himself a little bit here. I'll throw my voice to him. He'll, I'll make him talk. So <laughs> we- can be found on TikTok and Instagram at Overdue Rentals Show, on Twitter at Rentals Overdue, on Facebook at Overdue Rentals. And if you want to send us love letters, recommendations, you want to throw your voice into our inbox, email us at overdurentals at gmail.com. And of course, if you're just stumbling onto the show, or if you're a fan, find us wherever you can grab your fantastic podcast listenings, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, Anywhere you ethically want to source your podcasts, but also be sure to rate, review, and subscribe us as ethically as well. Mike. Matthew. Blah-bye.
0: blah